Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, I am Ezra Klein, and I am really excited. I got to talk this week to David Chang, the head of the Momofuku Empire. We got into a lot about how do you manage a massive restaurant business. What are the ways you're eating meat ethically, which is a topic I'm very particularly interested in. Why you should definitely go to Korean monasteries if you're in Korea. Why his R&D labs are vegan, despite the fact that his restaurants are, are heavily meat-centric. And Chang is just a, a fascinating, funny, smart, thoughtful, uh, inquisitive guy. It was a real pleasure to get to talk to him. He spent a lot of time with me. As always, I, I hope you uh, enjoy this interview as much as I did. But before we get into the interview, I have my one request for you, which is that if you are enjoying this podcast, if you enjoy this interview, please go share it with your friends. Uh, go pick whichever one has been your favorite. This one, any of them, Rachel Maddow, Bill Gates, Theta Scotch Bowl, Tony Podesta, and tell someone else that they should be listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me when you all share it. It means a lot to me when more people who might enjoy this can be part of it. And also, please let me know who you would like to see on the podcast. Uh, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. I take recommendations really seriously. I'm really excited to talk to the people you are excited to hear from. So please shoot me a note and, and, and let me know. So with that, David Chang and I started talking a bit right before the, the microphones turned on about ideas and, you know, something that, that he's really done in, in his career is come up with some kind of amazing new recipes and amazing new kind of forms of food. And we began talking a little bit about the question of how do ideas get protected? How do they not? What does it mean when they get ripped off in the food world? How does that differ from other sectors? So that should bring us in here to, to me and Chang. Should you be able to patent or otherwise protect innovative recipes, right? Should it be the case that when you invent something like the bagel bomb, that you have some kind of exclusivity over it? Because in other sectors, you, you would. You would be able to protect it to some degree at least. But here, you know, you can come up with a great idea and then that great idea, as has happened literally to you, becomes a trend overnight and everybody has some version of it. Yes. I want to say that we should have some patentability, but... Um... I don't know. I think about this sometimes when I listen to music or I read a lawsuit of music or right. some type of technology patent. And I'm like, well, is that so different than coming up with a recipe? And then I look at fashion and that's an industry where people copy left and right. And you right. can't really patent anything in fashion other than sort of the brand. So I could spend hours thinking about this. <laughs> but it makes me mad sometimes. It doesn't make sense why music should have it. 
you know, food can't. Do you think music should have it? I just think that's where the money was originally, yeah. and that's why. Was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is the first recipe you think you invented? Red-eye gravy. Was that it? was real. That was no one else had done. We had just gotten Benton's ham, and I was working with this product a lot in 2004, and growing up and going down to Virginia and, and Richmond and stuff. Like It's this great divide that happens within like two hours south of the D.C. area. Oh, yeah. When you say you live in Virginia, it's not really the south if you live in northern Virginia. Right. But you could go 60 miles west or 60 miles south, and you're in the south. Mm-hmm. And the food tastes different. The diners are a little different. And I can remember eating ham steaks with coffee. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it's sort of struck a nerve with me as like, why would you want to eat something like this? And then as I developed the palate, I understood that coffee and something salty and funky like ham steak would make sense. So I had all of this country ham from Tennessee, and I was trying to come up with a new flavor that, because it was so salty and so smoky, it made sense to me why you'd want coffee, the bitterness. But I couldn't just like dump a shot of espresso and make gravy. <laughs> and at times we make food with the stuff that we have on hand, and we had these poached eggs, and, and I was trying to make a an emulsification, basically like a mayonnaise out of the the eggs and, and reduce coffee. But if you continue to reduce coffee, it just tastes like, you know, ass and <laughs> I went to the bodega next door and I got the you know freeze dried coffee which has no no water content really right so that was the thing how do I get the coffee flavor without adding any extra water because it'll break my emulsification so I basically made a mayonnaise that was very stable because I cooked the eggs because they were already like you know poached and basically I added the vinegar and the seasoning was the the Folgers crystals wow <laughs> And is it is red eye gravy good? It's so good. Is and, it is it on your menus or was it? It ever? is. It still is on our menus. Okay. And if I said red eye mayonnaise, people would never eat it. So I just said it's a red eye gravy. <laughs> and that was the first time I think that I invented something that actually was from left field, but was delicious. I've seen it on other menus too, and it's a, you're just like, well, that's flattering. You're like, wait a second, that's right. something that will never be mass produced. But I think what, what year was this that you invented? Two thousand four. So you're classically trained, right? Yes. You, you were in very fine French restaurants for a period of time, like some, some of the big restaurants in New York. And you sort of at some point began to, it seems like, riff off in your own direction. And I'm curious like how much you always knew that you wanted to do that or when you were getting trained, you sort of thought you'd be in a more fine French restaurants, classical dining direction. Like how much has your own career been a surprise to you? I mean, my career has been a surprise to me completely and to just about everyone else. And I was telling this to Peter Meehan yesterday because we're working on something. I was explaining that, you know, in our book, I quoted like Steve Martin from his biography about like, I I just amount, right amount of naivete to like know what I could and couldn't do. And I had just enough experience working in fine dining. Two more weeks less or two more weeks more may never (laughs) have happened. And that's legitimately the truth. Had I taken a job working at Per Se or Hearth or Masa or Sushi Asuda, I would never be in this position. And the reason why I left sort of fine dining was I was never going to get my own shot. I was never going to be good enough. While I'm good, I looked at sort of I'm a very competitive person and having played a lot of sports, I was like, well, I'm not top 10. So I have to find something else. And by heart, I'm a classicist. I love traditional French or anything that's great uh, because I felt that I couldn't make a career out of that. I had to sort of 
do something else. Not even having expertise at that level provided me with a blank canvas to do whatever I wanted to do. So that became Momofuku. It was like everything that that is not. And you, one of the things it seems to me that that, that you've done is bring forward an appreciation for foods that were, I think, considered a little more déclassé, right? Like certain kinds of mayonnaise and and things that wave one of foodiness was, I think, a little bit snobbish. Did those things coexist within many cooks you knew and you were sort of unusual in actually putting them forward commercially? Or is that something that was a little bit more unusual to you, this kind of ability to mix being a, a sort of classicist at heart with someone who I think really understood the joy of Doritos? <laughs> well, because I wasn't going to belong to that school that I wanted to belong to, I was able to indulge in the things that everyone wants to say they enjoy, but they can't. I just didn't care. And that was the only difference is I had no allegiance to anything. So I was free to sort of pick and choose whatever the hell I wanted to like. Uh, because I was never going to be this grandmaster French chef, it didn't matter if I took something that was almost prepackaged into my cuisine. I was going to take the best of everything and sort of repackage it and repurpose it for me. You opened a restaurant fairly quickly. I've read some of you. I've read your book on this, and it seemed that the way it happened, it, it came together kind of fast. How did that decision go to open up your own shop completely? When you're 26 years old in 2004, opening a restaurant wasn't about opening a restaurant. I had no, like, oh, this is what I want to do. It was, how do I do something really difficult? And uh, when I actually opened up the restaurant, the prospect of like having this now forever really scared me because I actually didn't think about that. It was about getting something done, which is a crazy way to sound, but like, I just didn't think like life was going to like live that much. Long. I wasn't going to live that much longer. You know what I mean? Like when you're in your <laughs> mid twenties, you just are, or for me at least, I just didn't think that there was going to be years and years and years after this. I was like, I bought a one way ticket when I signed that lease and that's just the way I looked at it. Right. And I had no concept of what we were going to serve, how we were going to serve it. And that this is going to sort of hit these goals. It was a niche that I had to scratch. I felt that, having lived abroad, having traveled abroad, having worked abroad, and being fortunate enough to do so, travel so important, I think, to a young cook, is that you need to develop your taste. You realize that when I was working in Japan, for instance, you think that living in Japan is as expensive as it is that you couldn't eat well. But that's not the truth. You can eat extraordinarily well in Japan, cheaply. And you could probably eat well just about anywhere in the world, believe it or not, except in America. That was sort of the the thesis statement I was attempting to explore was, could you make great food of value that's not being done anywhere else? And in 2004, you couldn't eat well if you weren't in a fine dining restaurant. You had pockets in K-Town. You had pockets in Chinatown. You had places here or there, but no one was really doing something that was devoid of, you know, the bells and whistles of a traditional restaurant. And I worked at a restaurant once in 2000 where we were getting um, sort of reprimanded by the management because the restaurant wasn't right necessarily. We had just gotten a sort of a, a mediocre review and they said the number one thing that's important in a restaurant is the service. The number two is the decor. Number three is the food and I'm like, fuck, I'm working my ass <laughs> off. And, I, and that was sort of a pivotal moment for me as well. Like, you know what, if I ever have the chance, food's gonna be number one, everything else is gonna be secondary. 
And that happened to be the case because we opened a restaurant so on the cheap, around 100 to 120 grand. It was like probably 100 grand construction. We had 20 grand left over, 600 square feet. If I put backs on our chairs, you wouldn't be able to fit to go to the bathroom. Right. It was that narrow. And it was the size of one car garage. And you don't open that kind of restaurant if you think that you're going to be successful. It wasn't about success or anything. It was just like, I feel like it was just possession to just do something different. There was a lot going on. 2000, you know, I had three friends die in like a year. I had my mom battling cancer. I had a lot of family issues. And, you know, New York in post-September 11th was still fucking really crazy. You know, it really affected the hospitality business in a, in a crazy way, mm-hmm. too. So I just felt like, you know, most of my friends are going to business school. I'm 26. It was a calculation. They're going to incur probably two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars all in for living expenses. And I was like, "Well, this will be my my business school." Huh? And if I have to declare bankruptcy, I'm 26. Who cares? That's fascinating. The that thought of it like that. Did the sort of chaos going around you make it sort of easier to bear down and focus in on the restaurant as a refuge, or did it make it harder? That seems like a really emotionally no, hard it, time to it, start it something. Re- it really was. It was like. Day by day, you could see something growing, and it was so hard to manage that process. Even though it was very small, you know, no one wanted to work with me either. So it was something that I could sort of pour myself into and not really focus on what else was going on in the world. So that became sort of my sanctuary of sorts. How how did you hire? You just said nobody wanted to work with you. Who was your first? partner or employee i mean i mean the how per- did you first person i wanted to hire well again 2004 was a banner year in new york city one of the great it'll go down as one of the great years of all time you had per se you had hearth you had uh, crew blue hill stone barn so on and so forth masa spotted pig and i had worked a little over four years in professional kitchens and if you ask anyone and i was never that good because I was always asking questions because cooking doesn't come naturally to me. I have to really work at it to become proficient. And then I think I get really good. So the the prospect of Dave Chang opening a restaurant was like, even though it was a noodle bar, people were like, this kid's out of his mind. It was just a matter of time before he's going to go out of business. And I don't blame any of my friends that I asked to open up restaurants that, that, that didn't join me because they were becoming sous chefs at per se – at Blue Hillstone Barns, like everyone. I would have done the same thing, so I don't hold a grudge at all. But I couldn't hire anyone with skills, and that was a real problem. It, it was uh, going in maybe around two weeks before I was going to open up that – even before that, I, I asked my friend Brendan from college, who was a teacher. He just finished his, like, you know, master's degree in, like, education, and he wasn't doing anything. I was like, dude, you should just – we can do this together. I asked my brother's friend in Pittsburgh who had, like, a deli. I was like desperate. So you were really just looking for hands. Anyone. And then I was down talking to my brother's friend, actually here, I think. And, you know, he I think he called me from D.C. And he was saying like, oh, yeah, you know, I went to the Cheesecake Factory and they were saying, oh, we get our managers from Monster.com. I said, oh, yeah. And Craigslist at the time was free. So <laughs> I put a Craigslist ad like 16 times a day. And then I was like, there's nothing there. Interviewed a few candidates, but they didn't feel right. Yeah. And I put an ad on monster.com and um, I paid like 300 bucks or whatever it was. And then I got one ad from this guy, Joaquin Baca, and um, we had drinks. And his resume is from Texas. He had a big chip on his shoulder because 
This is what he told me over drinks at a bar in Alphabet City. He had tried to get a job at Cafe Balud. He had a job at Boulay. And they all offered him like slave wages because he wasn't from New York. He's a great guy. We're still good friends. And he was just very prideful and he was hurt and he was pissed. So that was it. And then we started talking about music. Like Lou Reed's like second solo album or something like that. Charlie's Girl, I think, of the song. And he's like, oh, I love this song. And then it just sort of progressed from there. And then I was like, you know what? I don't know about how you can cook or anything, but I can get along with you. And that's what matters the most. And he was the first employee. And we worked together for a very long time. And he left, and now he opened up his own restaurant called Brooklyn Star, which is doing fantastic. But to this day, I know that I wouldn't be here today without uh, Joaquin Baca Mm -hmm. helping me out. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance... Who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Now that you have a lot more choice when you hire, now that people will work with you, what do you look for when you interview people? Just the right amount of talent. Too much is bad? Too much is a bad thing. Why is it bad? Hubris, zero empathy, and I see this all the time. Really good cooks never learn how to be great chefs. The road is littered with bodies and bodies and bodies of great, great cooks that can never become great chefs. Much like I feel like athletes, great athletes, superstars never become great coaches because they don't understand why mere mortals can't do what they can do. It's just true. And I feel like... For me, the right amount of talent is barely enough. <laughs> yeah. So and, that's what I tell And how can for. you tell that? I mean, I, I don't imagine looking and saying, this food tastes just a little bit too good. There's something that's giving you a tell there. Well, the thing is, cooking is about failure over and over and over again, repetition of failure. And the more you fail, the more you learn, just like anything else in life. And it's how you approach that. And a sense of humility is so, so important in terms of how you approach that. If you think you're great and you have nothing to work on, there are cooks that are that good, but they don't become great sous chefs. They don't become great chefs. And ultimately, too, you don't want to be in a restaurant stuck with a bunch of cooks that are assholes. So you want to really surround yourself with good people that are I'd rather have green people that have never cooked before that are earnest and, and want to do it right. That when someone fucks something up, a really good cook will say like, you idiot, why would you do it that way? You're so stupid. Let me just fucking do it. The cook that I want now is, hey, they're, they've become really good. But because they were not good, they've learned to sort of empathize with those that are not good. They're going to be like, hey, you messed that up. Let me show you how you can make that better. That's really hard to do in anything. You know, I am... The grandmaster wizard at telling people how stupid they are. <laughs> you know, but 
I'm learning and I know that that's the type of uh, individual that I would want as well. Someone that can also not only identify the problem, but interjecting themselves into the equation. What's the breakdown in what you do now? Because um, I think it's fair to assume, or I assume you're not spending that much time, like literally cooking meals in the restaurants, but maybe some, like in a given week, what percentage of your time do you spend doing which things? It's crazy. I battle this a long time, how much time I spend in a kitchen. I cook very little. Sometimes I can go a couple months without ever cooking anything. Nishi, we just opened up and I did a lot more R&D and cooking. But like even now, turning 39 this year, if you ask, you know, what, Peyton Manning's 39. I'm not Peyton Manning, but if you had any athlete in the NFL at age 39, mm-hmm. you know, Yarmir Yager in the NHL is 44 and people think that's like this crazy thing. Yeah. People forget that this is a very crazy discipline, that it is a lot on your feet. It's a very physical activity, and your body breaks down. There's no way I can do what I did when I was in my early 20s. Mentally, I think that I can, but then you can't. So I got to pick and choose when I can, like, work. So last night, I almost didn't come down to D.C. because, like, one of our guys was short at Nishi, and I was like, hey, let me work, and they are like, no, no, no. We got other people. And as much as I want to, and I knew that I could, it was mm-hmm. best if I didn't. It was more like, and not just a player coach now, it's like, I guess the better analogy is like the editor, right? I'm not mm-hmm. the guy writing the pieces anymore. Yeah. And I think that, I don't know if people understand that. Day in, day out, repetition, it's it's hard to do. And we have restaurants from Australia to Toronto and DC and now Las Vegas and probably more. I have to really pick and choose when I can spend my time. And what I can do best is spend my time with the people that are actually on the ground doing those things, doing the actual cooking, the sous chefs, the line cooks. And if I spend more time with them, they're the ones that are going to make the food. Most of my time is doing doing that now. There's a lot more office stuff now. I'm working more than I've ever done before because I I never thought that you could – if you ask any cook when they sort of – around the age of like mid-30s, you sort of stop cooking. That just has to happen. They all feel bad because your day is defined by cooking before, where even if you had a bad day, you could go to bed knowing that you had a full day of work that you could sort of tangible, you knew what happened. Mm -hmm. And now when you do office stuff, it's like, what the fuck do you do? I I don't know. I, I still feel like every day, but now there's so much of that that I feel like I'm very, very busy. So there's that. And then I'm trying to manage that with the culinary end which is a lot as well. So, What is the culinary end? Spending time in the restaurants, mm-hmm. working with the sous chefs and the chefs. So for right now, my day starts at, like I get up at like 6.30 or 7. I do my personal time before then, try to gym, stretch, what, whatever. And then like from 9.30 on to like 5 or 6 is office. And then from 5 to 6, to, this is, I guess, the, the past month. Again, like every month changes. From 5 to 6 to around 11 to 12, I'm at a restaurant. That's a long fucking day. It's a long fucking day. <laughs> and that's like, I'm in D.C. now this weekend. I haven't had a day off in I don't know how long. This would traditionally be my days off, but I'm going to be here Friday, Saturday. I'll leave Sunday night. This may seem like a sort of simple, dumb question, but why do you push it that hard? Cause do, you, do you enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoy it, but it's also like, it's like a scratch. I have the itch. It's like, we got to fucking make it better. We have to do this. We have to do that. And 
I can certainly say this is one thing. I'm one of the few people that has what they love. Like, it's amazing. I get to do whatever I do. Like, life is fantastic. But there are a lot of things left out there that I, I haven't quite reached yet or the company. And and they're more, not even my goals, they're company goals now. And and there are days where I don't want to do it. There's literally like probably like five minutes to 30 minutes a day where like, I can't do this anymore. And I think that's a misconception to say that you love what you do, that you love it all the time. That's fucking a total lie. And I debate that all the time. And I debate that, am I the right role for this? And and so on and so forth. And, you know, we're trying to find more help on the office end and the business end. But overall, this is something that is all consuming. And I feel bad for my girlfriend. But it's like an OCD. I can't see this, like, paper not being completely organized. Right. And I've gotten a lot better at it, but... It's almost like, because I live in a world of sports analogies, it's like when you hear those college coaches or NFL coaches, and it's like February, season's over, and they're still working like 16, 17 right. hour days. And that's, it just is never ending. There's always something. And that's just how I feel about work right now. It's just, there's always so much more that can be done or to be improved upon. There's a book about parenting you just made me think of called All Joy and No Fun. Mm-hmm. The idea being that there's all these studies about parents that, um, if you have them like fill the timesheet while they're parenting, they're just much less happy than they were before they had kids. But if you ask them how their life is going, they're more satisfied, that, that there's some sort of deeper sense of well-being. Is that the kind of dynamic here that, uh, that it manifests moment to moment as a kind of like exhaustion and pressure, but overall there's a kind of pride and, and, and sense of value that you're creating? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of that. Like. I feel like we're very close to breaking through on how we're able to pay our guys overall. Why I love what I do is I get to work with people for someone that actually doesn't like people all that. <laughs> I just don't like people all that much. I, I, in terms of working with culture and the groups, that's what I like the best and coming up with new ideas and, and that's fun. But being able to provide now, I think that I can really say that over the years I've said no to money, a lot of money where I would never have to work ever fucking again. I've declined it. I know that because of that, I've not done it for the money. That doesn't mean that I don't want to accumulate money. It just has to be done in the right way. I have to be able to go to bed at night feeling like I didn't fuck anyone over. And the reality is, I'm sure if you talk to my critics or people that hate my guts, I'm like, all Dave Chang does is fuck people over. I understand that. But I feel like what keeps me afloat and why I've been able to navigate the minefield of being a chef in this day and age is... You know, I feel like we've really done our best to sort of adhere to some type of moral standard. I've read you talk before, and, and you just referenced it a second ago, that one of the things you really want to try to figure out how to do is pay your chefs more of a decent wage and more of a, a professional wage. And I think it's something people don't know that when they go to oftentimes like a really fine restaurant, a restaurant that is expensive for them to go to, that some of the top chefs in there will be making 30000 or $40,000. Why is the, the restaurant pay scale like that. It, it actually seems surprising to me from afar, given how much money is clearly flowing around the industry. Well, it's because food is still working off a paradigm that is like very old. And the people that have historically made food were bottom of the barrel, just got out of prison, dregs of society for the most part. So you would pay them the least. It would be the equivalent of like, why don't you pay our housekeeper housekeepers $100 an hour? It's the same, the same thing. Someone has to do the work. It's blue-collar manual labor. When you have to sort of sort out the prices in a restaurant, 
it's going to go everywhere but the people that are going to actually do the labor. So that's basically what's happened. The consumer has to understand that, that even if you're in a busy restaurant, it's quite possible that restaurant's not making money. Mm-hmm. The rent, the labor now is a huge issue. It's like, it bothers me because socially and politically, I'm pretty damn like liberal socially. Oh, well, I wouldn't say I'm a socialist, but you know what? I want, I, I'm behind everything that we're doing. What the government's doing, I would also want. But, but as a business owner, it doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> Because we're doing it anyway, and it's also it's painting us in a corner where there's no room to grow. There's only one narrow way to do this, and to navigate it's very difficult. Give me give me an example of what you what you mean there. The fifteen dollar minimum wage in New York, one hundred percent behind that, absolutely. But again, in theory, you have people doing these. I don't know how they're making this calculation, but it prevents the restaurant from actually providing possibly. And I'm afraid of what's going to happen because. Let's say a fine dining restaurant could do a good fine dining restaurant could be like two to five percent margins. Fast food probably is fifteen to twenty percent. So anything that's over ten percent in a restaurant is really good. And I was talking mm-hmm. to the CEO of one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world, and he's like, "Yeah, we had a bad year because we were like thirty-two percent." Yeah, they and make a fuck, fuck ton, ton of money, money pharmaceutical companies. And I'm like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Patents, baby. Yeah. <laughs> get that government-sponsored monopoly. Thirty-two <laughs> percent. And I don't think people understand that it's, it's it is a labor of love, and um, the 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 wages are really going to cut into the margins. And I think that the next two years are going to be very very telling about the future of the culinary industry. Because as much as I want to pay more overtime and how we train those people, I can't have. This is a perfect example now at Nishi when we're we're we're, we're testing this no tipping policy restaurant. My servers are getting paid anywhere from. $30 an hour, let's say. There's like 10 to 15 of them. And that's a lot per hour in terms of wages over a 10-hour day. And if you have overtime, that's time and a half. Mm-hmm. So you might need to have them come two to three to maybe sometimes four hours early to do education of wine, of new dishes, of just general service stuff. That can't happen anymore. They have to come in maybe 30 minutes before service starts. So what's happening is, and again, in terms of the analogy of uh, sports, all the restaurants, we all have to go to the spread offense. Everyone has to do the spread offense where you just line a bunch of mediocre, talented athletes and you have a couple superstars on your team and there's no place. And we're going to systemize it so we're going to make you look good. But the reality is, is like we're never really that good. The system makes us a little bit better. And that's what's happening. I believe the no tipping policy is forcing restaurants, which is why I have to explore it because maybe there's a way we can make it better. Is uh, if, you're, if you watch sports, it's like every restaurant's going to run the spread offense basically. And I don't know. It's a great concern. So I just want to say real quick because I'm not sure everybody listening will <clears throat> be fully in on this debate. The no tipping policy, there's been a move among some New York restaurateurs, I guess including you, to eliminate tipping at sort of finer restaurants and try to increase, to some degree I think it is, to increase prices and actually make it clear what you actually have to pay for the meal so that people can get a reliable salary and just make it a little bit more of a normal sort of compensation practice. Right. And you're trying that at one restaurant but not the others. Yep. And it's it's tough because the servers are, are getting capped out. They could be making a lot more if we were taking mm-hmm. tips. But the problem is, too, because of overtime and 
there's a lot of uh, variables that have to be discovered in terms of the size and scope of the restaurant, the comfortability factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the size has a huge deal. If you have like a 200-seat restaurant or 150-seat restaurant, you you can get away with some stuff. But my fear is the medium-sized restaurant from 50 to 75 seats, we could see the extinction of it in New York City. Really? It's just too hard to run. And uh, that could be as a result of labor because I you just – you need to have a certain amount of people to run a restaurant. I don't know if the numbers are going to work. So when you said you felt that you were potentially close on making a breakthrough on on how to be able to pay your guys, what is making you optimistic there? I think that the the breakthrough is going to have to come from just growth and expansion of other ways. So we're going to try to roll out fukus and we're going to try to open up more milk bars and things that are scalable and um, just grow. And I think that just size can give you the buffer to sort of direct a lot of that, those those savings back to your employees because the no tipping is great, but I'm still reserving my judgment until I see it work. And right now, I think it works for a certain kind of restaurant. I don't know if it works for all restaurants. And that's where I feel like I would love to go to Albany and be like, listen, guys, it's fantastic, but can we create some provisions in this rule? So it's interesting the way you describe the business right now because it, it connects to some things in, in media, which is the world I know better, where you have a lot of, particularly the newer digital players, but but not only, creating a system where the underlying business of actually running sort of a news publishing website, it's a manageable business and you can make some money at it, but, but it's a tough business. And so they're sort of building out these cores that become sort of intellectual property machines. And then they begin moving the intellectual property into television. They begin moving the intellectual property into conference businesses and into these other things that, for whatever reason, have different margins. And that this sort of money begins to cycle through and the ideas are coming out of the core. And then like those ideas are being pushed into places where they can rack up slightly larger profits. Is that sort of the direction of the business model for Momofuku? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, I look at fashion as the as the business template for the restaurants. And that's, I think, very similar to what I'm talking about now. It's you need to have a brand, I think, in order to sort of sell everything else. And, and um, I don't think trickle-down economics really works at all, but probably works pretty well in the restaurant business and, and the media industry because you have – the one or two things that most people will never really read or eat or hear or listen to, but it provides all the sort of stimulus for everything else. And if I can have a restaurant like Co, it allows me to sell a eight or nine dollar chicken sandwich better. Mm-hmm. And you know, I look at it like Hermes, the Birkin bag. Very few people buy, but allows them to sell the three hundred to five hundred dollar bag, which is not cheap, mm-hmm. but still a value to someone. Then they want to buy it. So. That's the way I look at it. And if we can grow the business so it's a brand uh, where people know that they're getting something of value and innovative and delicious, then we can sort of siphon off a lot of that sort of savings, I think, and and redirect it to our our guys. Are there specific companies, either sort of historical or current, that you look at and take inspiration from? Yes, and not really, though. Mm -hmm. I view Momofuku more as like a sports team. (laughs) So specific, you, you just really watch the Washington Redskins and think that is a great managed franchise. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I would, I'd rather be like the Spurs or the the Patriots. You know, yeah. cheating, cheating uh, excluded. Uh, that's honestly almost every day. Sometimes that's how I like to get through some of the, the mm. harder parts. It's like, oh, this is like running a sports franchise. <laughs> <laughs> how is it like running a sports franchise? 
in terms of the talent, in terms of organizing that talent, scouting that talent, grooming that talent. You know, you don't want to be a team that only uses free agency uh, to, to build that culture. It almost never wins. It's almost always about the culture that you groom from the guy that you drafted when they were a teenager or whatever and, uh, and building that person up and all the business components to making money as part of the sports franchise. I believe are very similar, again, to how I view Momofuku, right? It's, uh, whether they're TV deals, like a lot of teams don't make money, but it's the TV mm-hmm. deals that make them money. And I think that's like an example. There's other avenues that can pay the salaries of my guys. How many people work at Momofuku now? Near a thousand. And how did you figure out how to manage a thousand people? Because that's got to be really different than managing a restaurant where if you put backs on your chairs, nobody could walk to the bathroom. Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I'm in the process, and it's only been the past sort of two, three years that I've really been in earnest trying to do that. And, and as we grow, and to be honest, I'm terrible at it. I think <laughs> uh, it's really hard managing people, and, and managing people where. I feel like I've gotten good to talk to people in the kitchen, right? And mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, just because I would talk to someone in the kitchen, I feel like that's civil. But civility in the kitchen and in a corporate environment are completely different. <laughs> I feel like I live in the HR hot zone, and um, it's not a fun place to be. But uh, managing people is really hard, and it's something that is not natural to me as well. And I have to spend a lot of time trying to get better at it. Because I'm so bad at it, I want to get better at it. Do you, like, read management books, I, talk to mentors? Like, how yeah. do you how I'm, do you I have a lot. I have a lot of mentors, and I'm so, so lucky to have that. But in terms of management books, I don't really read any of that stuff. They're, they're really bad. I'd rather read books, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I can learn more about history or an autobiography about someone that made a ton of mistakes or they had uh, – you know, a temper or they learn to overcome yeah. something than I can from a management book. When I started managing, I was like, well, I got to figure out how to do this. I don't, I don't really know how. So I read some management books and it was just like, here's a bunch of anecdotes. <laughs> Take them and go forth, young manager. It, it's a really weirdly low stand, evidentiary standard in that area. It's Not it's, all of them, but a lot. No. And I, I think that I, I've been lucky and um, I've had some great people to sort of set, pull me aside and be like, hey, buddy, you can't act like this anymore. You know, I think the biggest thing, the best thing for management is just to be waterboarded with criticism. <laughs> you know, and this is what I tell, like, guys that are becoming sous chefs now or even, like, anyone. Like, I do my orientation now. Every month I do, like, two. You know, because, like, I want to be – I tell them I may never work with you, yeah. you know, like, side by side. But the reality is, is, like, I want to make sure that your first introduction to Momofuku isn't a shitty one. Because almost everyone's done introductions and it sucks mm-hmm. in a co- corporate culture. And over the years, we've had to embrace a corporate culture. I, I got into cooking to be allergic to this stuff. And now I, I realize for us to get there, I feel like we need to embrace the things that you know we never wanted to do. And I tell these guys, like, one of the anecdotes I have, which is true, is whenever you have beers with your friends after work or in your day off in the industry, all you do is talk shit. That's the unwritten rule in the hospitality industry is – the one commonality is all we do is talk shit, mostly about our bosses and the dishes that we make. And I was like, that's a rite of passage that we do. And the reality is, is one day when you become a manager, someone's going to talk shit about you. So view, view this as an opportunity to sort of like get better at this. And I don't know, man. I, I, I just view management as for me, how do I do it? If How, how would I want to be treated? Right. What are the pieces of criticism you've gotten that have actually changed the way you operated? People are scared. Huh. 
You know, I, I want criticism. You know, maybe it's the tiger parenting from my parents, but I just don't view praise as something that's real. <laughs> I mean, how many times have you said, oh, I love this. It's so good. Because <laughs> you yeah. don't, don't have the heart to tell someone that it sucks. Yeah. But when someone tells you that I don't like something, they're rarely ever going to be lying. So I have a Jewish mother. I believe all <laughs> praise is completely real. <laughs> like it's deeply felt, really means it. So I just have a hard time like not getting criticism. I mm. seek it out. And um, when someone was like, a lot of people were like, hey, Dave, like no one wants to tell you anything because you're just a bully. You know, I could go on and on. Like everything that is possibly negative about a person I feel has been said to me. Not that it just hurts. It's like, okay, like, well, I thought that was true. <laughs> now I need to like get better at it. And um, for me, I work best with criticism. And uh, uh, people have said a lot of negative things about me that have worked for me because I've asked for it. Doesn't mean that I'm getting better at it either, but I'm trying. This episode is brought to you by Choiceology an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Choiceology is a show all about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Each episode shares the latest research in behavioral science and dives into themes like, can we learn to make smarter decisions? And the power of do-overs. The show is hosted by Katie Milkman. She's an award-winning behavioral scientist, professor at the Wharton School, and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or find it wherever you listen. One of the things that, that it seems to me you all have done, and you were talking about doing R&D for uh, one of the new restaurants, is to build research into the company in a sort of very systematic way. As far as I can tell from afar, because I watched your Mind of a Chef videos, like it, it seems that you basically have laboratories. And I'm curious at what point you decided to make an actual investment in that, right? I mean, I'm sure sort of a lot of restaurants, people are trying new dishes and trying to come up with the next thing. But sort of throwing those long balls um, seems like a hard thing to, to put focus on. It seems like a hard thing to direct resources to when I'm sure there's always like something that you need to do right that second. Absolutely. Uh, R&D in a lab is so important. You know, when uh, Ferran Adria and a bunch of the Spanish chefs started to dedicate and Heston Blumenthal, great chefs in Europe, started to have dedicated research facilities to making recipes. It was like unheard of. These research places were carved outside of the normal kitchen and they had their own independent staff. And I remember like, when am I ever going to get the chance to have that? If you go to the Fat Duck in Bray in England, it's like a real building that's like beautiful and it's, it's amazing. The stuff that they're making in there is real R&D. And we try to do this in old office space and and then when, and grow and and I felt that if we could make these ideas and centralize it, it could sort of trickle into the other restaurants. They could get it if they wanted it because I didn't want to make something and like rule it like a totalitarian regime where you have to make this, you have to use this new technique we created. I felt that if it was good enough, they would take it on their own. I felt that we needed to do it. We did it, and it continues to morph because whenever you have it, it builds up. It creates jealousy in my restaurants, at least. No one thinks they're actually doing anything of use. 
Oh, interesting. So they see like the R&D team is sort of pampered and doesn't have to like be on the line all night. Huh? Absolutely. And uh, they they just constantly question, is it actually good enough? That's like when it goes, it's a very cyclical phase for the R&D. That's like the downturn. But when we've closed it or reformatted it over the years, and right now we've closed the R&D lab because it's now become a place that makes the things that we've invented, the hozone and banji and the som sauce and a lot of the fermented product. People are now complaining. We need a place to explore ideas. So you had to close it. You had to close it down the labs? I didn't close on the lab, but at a certain point when you're growing, you just can't have these R&D expenditures. And we had sat on all of these ideas that were so good that we're like, oh, shit, we got to sell. And that's what happened. So the lab turned into let's refine this and make it better. Because at a time, none of the other restaurants were actually incorporating any of the ideas we're making. It was like very low, (laughs) low percentage. So they're like, why are we even doing this? And now there's rumblings like, Dave, we need a lab. <laughs> and this is where some of the sort of bottled products. And so now you're sort of moved from the R&D to actually like you've Correct. developed products and you're rolling them out and commercializing them. Yeah, absolutely. And that we're doing that. And the lab still exists. It's just in a different form and function. Huh. And now we're probably going to create a new lab. And then in four years, we'll probably close it down again. <laughs> Do you feel like a lot of things are like that where you end up? Solving the same problem, then facing the same problem, then solving the same problem, you know, again and again every couple of years? All the time. But I've accepted it. You know, it's like it is what it is. And I'm just like there's no point arguing it because what I'm battling is human nature. Mm -hmm. I can't change that. Right. When you guys started at Momofuku, I remember that the restaurant menu had this sort of like if you're vegetarian, kind of screw off thing at the bottom. Later, I remember reading a piece from you in GQ kind of saying, you know, Enjoy your meat now because environmentally, ethically, like this is not going to last. I'm curious if the way you think we eat in America broadly is ethical and is sustainable. You know, I wrestle with this a lot. The sustainability of what we do. It's not an easy question to answer. It weighs on my mind a lot because you want to support the right farmers. But right now, there's so much big business going into right farming Mm -hmm. that it almost defeats the purpose sometimes. And... I have to really figure that one out because meat is going to get more expensive. Even the fuel is cheaper than ever before. Meat is more expensive. Beef is like astronomically expensive right now. And again, people don't understand this. This goes back into the the topic of wages and stuff. Like food just is going to have to get more expensive. But that's going to take some time. In the, in the meantime, we have this movement towards more vegetarian cuisine. And when we launched in 2004 – and we did the no vegetarians, no special request is because we were being obnoxious kids and we got away with it because we didn't want to feed vegetarians. I, I just didn't think a small restaurant that's 600 square feet needed to be a restaurant for everyone. Mm-hmm. You don't go to a sushi restaurant asking for vegetarian stuff. You don't go to a barbecue place asking for, you know, vegetarian stuff. You could, but you just they just don't. And I wanted to make sure that our brand was a little bit different. But as we grew and as I got to know more of our farmers, the story became more complex in terms of how you support them. And the farmers get screwed the most, the ones that want to actually raise it the right way. So it's a big dilemma. I don't have the answer per se. The whole idea of ethically eating animals is still sort of funny to me because you still have to kill the animal. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there is an ethical way of of doing that. 
And for the most part over the years, I stopped putting animals on that I couldn't kill or I haven't been in the process of killing or, mm. or giving birth to. You know, like <laughs> what, what were the animals you couldn't kill? A suckling pig. That, oh, that came off the menu immediately. Huh. Veal was another one until I came across um, a Virginia farm. These are the, the, the dilemmas. Veal is a particularly touchy subject with a lot of people. But if you go a little bit further into why veal actually happened, then you actually have a, a dilemma. Now, this farmer here in Virginia near Middleburg is raising ethically raised veal. And to most people, they'd be like, how is that possible? But she raises a certain kind of dairy cow. And there's a, she's a farmer, and there's only so much land that she has. And let's just say hypothetically that the, she gives birth to like 100 calves. 99 of them are male. Mm-hmm. She's breeding calves for milk, not for yeah. anything else. So all of a sudden, the best use of practice then, not only for the environment, but for everyone involved and for the farmer, is to slaughter the veal, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, there are obviously other reasons, but this is one dilemma that I'm looking at. And I can understand that someone that is listening to this could be really upset about this. And I think you should be, but this is like the this is a debate, I think, is what do you do? And this is a hypothetical situation, but what do you do with all these male dairy cows that will produce no milk. I once met a someone who farms goats for cheese. It makes goat cheese. And she was telling me that she had was working with a not a charity, but an organization that had been using goats to clear land. sort of land in, in certain, frankly like underserved areas, places where, you know, the government was no longer keeping up the land effectively. And she said it's great because then I don't have to send my male goats into the meat industry. And the way she said it, it was like, it took me a moment to realize what she had said, right? It's not like she dresses them up in a suit and they get a briefcase and it's like off to learn how to make meat. But no, I mean, if you're making goat cheese and you have male goats, you slaughter them for food. Yes. What does, somebody who knew this better, and you you, you may know this better than I do, told me recently that the sort of outcry on veal, the specific feelings people have about veal now the things they used to do with veal, they do with a much broader range of animals. And that like people don't realize that factory farming has actually just taken things that you used to think were rare and made, made them broad. Do you, yeah. do you know if that's correct? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. We started selling Berkshire pork a long time ago, and I would have done Nyman. And that's another thing. Nyman got bought by some huge company. I can't remember. Oh, I va- yeah, I vaguely remember this. And that's like, either. that. this is a moral dilemma. Nyman Ranch is an amazing company of co-op of farms that raise... They're animals to the highest of standards that you could possibly do. People don't like them because they're so big, but it's hard to sort of knock them. But if ethical eating – I mean I'm always curious about this like because I hear it in what you're saying that there's a sort of tension between ethical and, and big. But if this is going to become something you can really do, doesn't it have to get huge? It doesn't have to become big business yes. at some point? And not when big business – I think like one of the biggest meat producers bought Nyman. I can't even remember the name. But it's shocking. It would be like um, Exxon buying, you know? It's like, it's crazy. So what do you do? Do you still support Nyman Ranch or do you not support Nyman Ranch? Because they still are doing everything right, but they're now owned by a big bad corporate entity. It's a dilemma that I don't think a lot of people want to talk about because it's too hard. Yeah. To actually connect this maybe back to Nyman. So Chipotle, which I think so far as I guess it's called fast casual chains goes, tries very hard to ethically source its its meat, had a lot of trouble. I think still has a lot of trouble. It, it bought from Nyman, but as it grows, it's not able to get enough 
of the ethically sourced meat. For a while, there were just there was no pork at the Chipotle's, uh, at least around here. And I used to do a, a food policy column at the Washington Post. So I was pretty involved in these issues, and it has seemed to me this is a real dilemma that within the sort of food world, people who care about this stuff have a very deep mistrust of large agribusiness, and I think a well-founded mistrust given how that has gone. But that also ends up being a bit of a impediment to these kinds of companies scaling. But like ultimately, like if you want meat to be ethical, you've got to have enough for McDonald's to use, right? I mean, maybe we'll eventually just sell this by lab growing the food, right? But in the short term, you somehow need some kind of bridge because you're not. I'm a I'm a vegetarian, but you're not going to get everybody there, right? So it's going to be an interesting next decade. Uh, in terms of what happens, because there's so much money in food right now. And whether it's Chipotle or going back to the pork that in the early days of Momofugu, we were selling so much pork belly. And now, like, I want to sell as little pork belly as possible because we're trying to be more economical with what we're doing. I just don't want to sell a dish to kill a pig just for its belly. Mm -hmm. I just can't function that way. This was when I had my first eye-opening experience. There was this farm that I won't name that got bought out by a large pork producer. And I said, I want to meet with the farmers. And then you came in suits. And I said, listen, guys, I can't buy your pork. You guys are just another big corporate entity that doesn't care. You're big agribusiness. They were like, oh, we're raising it in open air and all this stuff. But it was. It was like a jail cell. It was, it was like a very expensive jail cell. But nonetheless, what they were preaching was not what was actually right. happening. And I said, listen, like, I want to buy from real farmers. I want to know their story. And I, I gave them a bunch of like my advice angrily. because like, I'm not <laughs> going to buy your stuff. A month later, they have a new website and they just put families on the website. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is wild <laughs> with their story and everything. And I was like, I can't buy from these guys. Is there a way for just like an ordinary person who eats food, which is all of us on some level, to figure out what is going on beyond the food you buy. Because now it's like there's all this stuff, and I think this is to the point you just made, where the language of, of ethical eating has been really effectively co-opted. So it's like cage-free hens, and they're just all in some completely dark, gigantic barn packed in next to each other. In your everyday life, like how do you try to decide what is something that you can feel good about supporting and, and, and what it and, and what isn't? Because you can meet with farmers sort of as head of Momofuku and, and other things, but if you're just someone who goes to the market. I think that restaurants buy really good stuff. If you go to a really good restaurant, more than often than not, even though a chef that hasn't been there, I don't want to name names. There are places that you can go to. Or I try to only eat meat now if I know where it's coming from. It doesn't happen all the time. It's interesting what Chipotle's done. Now they're in trouble because of the success of what yeah. they were doing before. I don't have the answer to that other than I think that you should be able to purchase from a chef, from a restaurant, that you respect and admire. Because if they care about the little things, they're gonna care tremendously about the food that they're purchasing. It's not always true though, because you can't run a completely sustainable business. That can't happen. I can't get my garlic, I can't get my carrots all the time. Mm -hmm. Certain things you have to sort of have a give and take on. But for the most part, I feel like if you develop a relationship, almost like in the 50s and 60s, having a relationship with your butcher, this is the day where you have to have a relationship with your chef because that transparency is there. You were saying earlier that you're looking to, to scale the fried chicken sandwich shop that you guys created. When you think about a world where there are 5,000 of those or 10,000 or 500, I don't, know what, I don't know what your ultimate hope is here, how does that change the process of purchasing? 
Well, that's a big debate right now for us. We're trying to figure out other ways. How can we utilize the entire chicken? And that's another debate too. It's like, how do I support my guys too? There's a huge quandary here that I haven't quite figured out. And I feel really good about the chickens we're buying right now. But what if there are days where this is something that we talk about as a scenario that we just have a ration of chickens that we can responsibly source Mm -hmm. instead of saying like, you know, just tell them we just, it doesn't grow on trees. (laughs) I mean, it's as simple as that. Meat doesn't grow on trees. I think if people were part of the process, they would pay more money for it. But it's amazing what the meat industry has done to sort of sanitize the entire operation. Britain is a completely different story. Like their TV shows are pretty gruesome. Oh, really? Uh, oh, my God. British food TV is the best. Oh, see, I only watch the the, the Great British Bake Off. Oh, that, I actually haven't so, seen, but people love that. It's amazing, but they don't slaughter anything. Right. Like, it's just But, like, hits. I was watching a show once where they took, like, inner city kids and they took them to an abattoir and, you know, everyone took process in killing a cow. Mm-hmm. Like, that's hardcore. And that, see, that's going to change your your perception on, on eating animals. And I don't think it's a light conversation to have. And I, I don't have the answer myself because... I want to do it the right way. Simple as that. But there's got to be a way that's the right way. But um, I don't know what that is yet. You know, I feel good about where we're at right now, but I can see foresee a problem where we were going to have to say, like, maybe we only have 500 chicken sandwiches today. Right. We're going to have to sell other things. So that's the debate is, like, do we put salads on? Do we put rice bowls on? You know, we're in development of something that is, like, a vegetarian version. I view this as a as a creative challenge for us to sort of work around it. Huh. And do you think about, I mean, are you following the lab-grown meat stuff? Yeah, Impossible Foods is pretty cool. And that's another debate. Like, you're vegetarian. Yeah. Would you, and you're doing that for ethical principles. Yeah. Now, have you tried it? Have you tried any of this stuff yet? Impossible Foods? No, I'd like to. But there are other things out there. No, Impossible Foods is in the name. Shit. Um, Impossible Foods is doing the automated burger stuff. Okay. Everything's coming out of uh, Bay Area, but... Would you eat a burger that tastes like a burger, but it's made from plant material? Yeah, definitely. See, but I that's, think a that's lot. A, that's a goddamn dream. Yeah, it's a goddamn dream. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not vegetarian because I think it tastes better. <laughs> <laughs> but what? What? what what's that? What's going to happen to a lot of vegetarians that are doing that for the principle of like they can't eat meat or the taste of meat? You know what I mean? Because it does. It's funny. I've started to burgers are actually one of the things I really miss. But I've started over like months and months and months to begin to lose it right occasionally i'll break and breaking feels less good and delicious each time which weirds me out a little bit the way that the way that can change but but what if you could have something guilt-free that tastes exactly or even better than a meat burger tastes more meaty than a meat burger i think that's going to screw with people i really hope it doesn't so i have this real belief that a lot of the things that are going to save uh, a lot of the the things you worry about in the food industry are going to violate a lot of the principles that people who care about food really hold dear. Like one of the big ones is that if there are going to be like answers to like the way people eat, a lot of it is going to be processed and prepared food. That there's this kind of, you know, sort of burbling demand that everybody goes home and cooks. And I like cooking. It's a great hobby for me. I really am into it. But if you just look at time use and the way people use their time and like how much time they have, they're either going to have healthy options they can do real quick or they're not and then they're not going to do that and then similarly here i mean i think technology will do a lot of this and you know it's funny i I really think one bad thing that's happened with the conversation about vegetarianism is that it matters so much more that like if 
80% of the population stopped eating meat on Mondays, then right. 2% of the population doesn't eat meat at all. And it's become this kind of issue of like all or nothing personal ethics, when in terms of the consequence on the world around you, it's completely a sliding scale. Like if you, if the only thing you ever ate was beef, like as a person, you would kill half a cow a year. Yeah. Like that's it. The all or nothing of it, I think has been really, really bad. It's become too much of an aesthetic preference. And, and, and the all or nothing, what about the dilemma of, again, I always use this example. I have a lot of friends from college are all phylo majors and they're all vegetarians and I back them 100%. My anti-vegetarian stance was surely about our ability to execute it yeah. in a restaurant. So we were at a wedding and we we're on the Cape and there was this local beef that they killed an old dairy cow. It was the, and all the local lobster and everything. And they requested vegetarian food. And it was like, I think it was like December. It was like three years ago. <laughs> they got a plate of asparagus and all this other stuff that I knew came from Peru and Ecuador. Right. And I told them, I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? This stuff literally came from here. There's no carbon footprint. There's zero nothing. And you refuse to eat that because of ethical boundaries. I was like, you're causing more damage by supporting this, this plate of asparagus, than you are from eating something that's here. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Man, like the the environmental side of it, right? The carbon side of it, I think is so fucking tricky. I've like tried to get a really good handle on this of how much is done through a cow, how much is in chicken, how much is in different kind of vegetables. And it is just and the incredibly labor, hard. The, the, the labor beef too. is high. We know that. But like a the, the that, human labor that goes into yeah, this sure. too, that's the worst to yeah. me. And I, I and they were like they were like the meat eaters almost. Right. And I was the vegetarian in a way. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here, guys? Well one of the things I think about with that is what do you do in a situation where it's already prepared, right? Like whatever you're doing, you're not increasing demand. Yes. Right? And anything you do above that is going to increase demand. So you're just going to increase resource consumption. And one version of it is, well, by being annoying about being a vegetarian all the time, you're making people in the future, you know, make a little bit less meat, make a little bit more vegetable food. But on the other hand, like in this, you're not ever going to come back here probably. And in this particular situation, you know, you're just going to let this food go to waste. And I don't have a good answer. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, fuck it. And sometimes I'm not. Right. That, that's the thing is these are – it's so crazy that food can present such a dilemma yeah. like that. It's like what are you supposed to do? And and that's how I feel about chicken right now too and just about everything. Like pork, like we're, we're using so much less pork than we ever sold before. It's crazy because I want to be better at it. I want to be a better custodian of how we sell it. And the same thing with chicken and, and that comes with our purveyors and – there are dilemmas out there that we're going to figure out. I just don't have the answer right now. And that's what I feel about about like vegetarianism right now too. It's like there are dilemmas out there yeah. that I don't think people have really thought through quite yet exactly what it is. But that working out to me is, you know what? I'm a vegetarian until that's this situation where it, you know it's already dead and it came from the area and we didn't just kill it for no reason. It was an old dairy cow mm -hmm. and we turned it into something delicious. We took lobsters from the area. We turned it into something delicious. And I'll eat this. Why, why can't we come up with another framework? It seems a little bit too rigid to say like, oh, I have to eat this plate of vegetables from Peru grown by a sort of slave labor mm -hmm. because I have to be a vegetarian. And this is what I think makes it incredibly hard. I, I think about this a lot in terms of the sort of conversation about climate change and, and, and products where 
you know, you'll sometimes get into these incredibly esoteric debates about putting aside food completely, like, did you buy this thing? Where did it come from? What was the carbon intensity in, in which it was used? And the reason I'm a big fan of these policies that somehow or another put a price on carbon is that as a consumer, I cannot make those decisions. I do not have enough information. I do not have the mental capacity. I am not smart enough. And I just don't have the time. And this kind of thing where we externalize a lot of the really bad shit that goes into what we consume, right? So, I mean, one reason meat is cheap is because we are being subsidized by being super cruel to animals, yep. right? It gets more expensive if you are a better steward of, of your animals. One reason vegetables are cheap is we are incredibly cruel to laborers who produce them and pick them and, and harvest them. And it's not even like as a consumer, you have a choice between these things, right? It's just these are costs you don't see and but can't But people don't want to pay the real cost. I e think that's true, yeah. Even the people that want to support it, they don't want to pay the real cost for it. They just don't. And it's a dilemma that I see, and I remember, you know, when you start out as a cook, or as I did, you believe the things that are told to you, like sustainability, all these things, you, you just do it, because you have no choice, in a way, because you're working for these chefs. And then when you're in it longer, mm -hmm. and you work with these farmers, you see it, and then you believe it, for real. And then you want to practice it. And then I remember doing a food bank thing, probably a few years ago, and this was my first real interaction with the, the discrepancy between the slow food movement and sustainability and real fucking life. Mm -hmm. And we were giving out turkeys and I was doing a, a demo on like how to make chicken soup and to stretch out your turkey or chicken or whatever it was. Yeah, it was chicken for under families of four, but turkey if you had it. And I think we had a lot of like sustainably raised chicken and turkey. And then a lady comes up and we're after it's done, we're handing them out. And the lady comes up to me and she's like, I don't fucking care about this whatever the hell you were doing just give me my fucking turkey she didn't say it like cursing yeah. but i think she dropped a couple f-bombs in there because she was just like i'm waiting for my turkey you're giving me the stupid demo i don't care yeah and i'm like very quickly i was like i'm sorry like and she's like how much is your fancy turkey and i said i don't know you know in, in my mind i was probably going to be like 60 70 bucks yeah she's like i can buy five of these commodity turkeys or chickens to feed my family for, for a whole week. Why should I support this when they don't support me? And I was just like, I have no answer. Mm -hmm. You have every reason to buy whatever the fuck you want to buy when you can't afford a fancy turkey for the most part, grown properly. And to me, when food is priced out at what it needs to be priced out at, a lot of people are going to suffer. Yeah, I mean, and, and then you get into one of the big things, I think, environmentally is the developing world, right? What happens when everyone in India or everyone in China or Indonesia or, or wherever begins to be able to afford just a lot more meat in the diet, right? Or at least in the parts of these these areas that do eat meat. And you really quick again, it's like, who the fuck are we to tell them not to do that? To say it's bad for the environment right. after we have basically like cooked the planet all on our own in, in the countries that have been energy intensive for a long time. And... I totally agree. Like there is not a good answer to that. I was talking, I had a conversation here a couple of weeks ago with Bill Gates and he he was saying that for him, the only solution to, to climate change is something where you actually invent a technology that can make the cost of energy, the, the climate cost of energy zero, because you are just never going to be able to say to India, you cannot electrify. Like you just can't say that. It's not a fair thing. There's a big debate that a lot of, again, people don't want to talk about our food. There was an organization 
that got it fed 200,000 people, I think, for six months. But that food came from Monsanto. Mm -hmm. This organization is getting shit because they got food, charitable food from Monsanto. And I'm like, listen, I think Monsanto is one of the worst fucking organizations on the planet. But how can you debate your cause versus feeding starving people? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me. And sometimes I feel like we need to get over ourselves to sort of do the betterment of people. But it's still a moral dilemma. It's like, by doing this, I'm supporting this company that does, I don't know, you know, I can't really say. But that to me is why the, the conversation about scaling this stuff is so actually important. Because unless we're able to get to somewhere where you have so much demand and such efficient business practices that you can somehow have a, you know, a, a reasonably more ethical way of doing this, but it can be affordable, you're really just in a conversation at that point about personal aesthetics, right? You're really in a conversation at that point about how do you organize your life so that you feel good about it and you look good to other people, mm -hmm. right? If, if, if you care more about whether businesses are small than whether they're good, I don't see what the next step is, right? I don't see like how it becomes something that people who don't have the option of thinking about this stuff as like a luxury decision get to partake in it. Yeah, I, I don't either. I, I, I just amazing to me that there's not enough information or resource out there to sort of work through these dilemmas. Yeah. Because I think actually the reason why is people don't want to look, they, they don't want to answer these hard questions because it's just too goddamn hard. I think it really questions their own morality. Yeah. I, mean, I also wanted to tell you just on the on the veggie food thing, I was at uh, the Momofu DC a few weeks ago and you guys have a cucumber salad there That's now. That's so good. Which is fucking awesome. So good. I'm a big fan of cucumber salad, and it's like the best one I'd had. Well, you got to try uh, the chickpea hosel that we make. It's funny, in our in our lab, everything in our lab when it was really like in its heyday was vegan. Huh. And I didn't even know exactly how that came about, but when retrospect, it was because it was the thing that was uh, the least analyzed in my world. Oh, really? Right? You can extract flavor from chicken and pork and beef and mushrooms and everything like that, but like, how do you make something that is traditionally not delicious, very delicious. To me, again, that's a great challenge. Was there, so my wife is vegan, so I have to cook a lot of vegan at home. Were there any principles that you guys discovered that um, would, would be well, helpful? It's all for about me? fermented foods. That's huh. we, we cook we, it with a lot of kimchi now. A lot of kimchi, but I mean, my God. We were making this vegan cheese that was so good. So good. What was it made out of? Was it nuts? Nuts and, and um, chickpea. Chickpea to me is like this thing that continues to just be a, a goldmine for us uh, in terms of ideas. It's so complex when you age it and you ferment it and you add mm. aspergillus orzier, like uh, the, the mold that um, that is used in rice. It tastes – it's like cheese ate cheese. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. And then you dry it out and you can shave it a little bit. But the problem is it takes like six to nine months to make <laughs> But all the sauces, and to me that was so so fascinating, was trying to go down a rabbit hole that most people think, didn't think that we'd ever do, which is anything that's vegan or vegetarian. Yeah. And it sort of became our mantra. It's like we're not dealing with anything that's animal. Like how do we extract the most flavor out of the things that most people can't assume that there's any flavor out of? And it's it was a joke. It was like, it was like Moneyball. We're going to try to find value right. where most people don't think there's any value. And we went to rye. We went to um, – like all these New York State grains that are tremendous. Rye, wheat berries, beets, fermenting beets. Uh -huh. We make a beet paste and we ferment it and we call it beet hozone. It's amazing. 
that's why the lab sort of changed too. Is like, holy shit, we 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 have this amazing stuff. How do we sell it? How do we even get people to even use this? Because it's so crazy. <laughs> You know, and, and have you? Is there somewhere I can buy your chickpea cheese? <laughs> well, we got to make it again, but we have the chickpea hozon that we make, and and problem is, is I looked at what happened with Italian food, and I think the success a lot of it goes to with Mario Battaglia done, and more people know more about Italian food than ever before. It's crazy. They can tell you crazy pasta shapes. People know about stracciatella. They know about every type of Italian food item. Twenty five years ago. If you walk down a supermarket aisle, there was one or two types of olive oil. Yeah. Now, it's a whole aisle dedicated to olive oil. It's pretty wild. And I felt that I don't know if Asian foods will ever have the sort of heyday that Italian foods have had, but for me to sell soy sauce and misos, like that I think is a bet that I want to take in 20 yeah. 25 years because it's so good. Really great soy sauce. I mean, the thing that will change your life the most is if America can make great shiro miso, which is huh. white miso. And like if you get in Japan, I don't know if you've had it. Yeah. It's it's like the best peanut butter you've ever had. Yeah, it really is kind of like that. It's so good. You taste it, you're like, why can't I eat this in my life We make day? We make your guys' corn with miso a lot. <laughs> which is great. But it's just like if you're going to eat vegan, like the main thing that, that, that we found was like you just have to eat other cultures foods yeah like you can make amazing asian food vegan it's no problem at all but but japanese have it like down cold for me i i think all of their temple cuisine so korean temple cuisine is amazing uh again and a lot of people don't know it's like i spend so much time studying this stuff because i just go where the flavor is yeah and i joke with renee at noma i was like hey buddy like the koreans have been doing your food way before <laughs> you did your food i mean these temple nuns that's another trip you and your wife should take i don't Going to the the mountainside of the Buddhist monasteries, the uh-huh. holy cow! That'd be amazing. They eat so well, and they have nothing to do all day but chant and cook. And they've developed ways of cooking food that are so delicious. You don't even, but it's so labor intensive. We, we That's have this. Problem. Well, is that right? Because we have this book. It's like from the seventies, and it's Japanese Buddhist <laughs> temple cuisine, and it's just amazing. It's like take twenty green beans. Put four sesame seeds on them. Look at a bottle of sesame oil. <laughs> like walk away. <laughs> like it's just like I've never seen recipes like that. They turn out beautifully, but they're more simple than anything I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it, it's a lot of it is about preservation too. And so when I was in um, Korea a few years ago, I, I was eating these potato chips, which is crazy. Was, it, potatoes were introduced to Korea in like probably like 1910, right? It's like the best Pringle you've ever had. They slice these potatoes and they wash them thoroughly to wash the starch out. And then they, these old ladies are climbing the roof and like pat, like um, putting the slice of potato on the roof. Oh, shit. <laughs> and then letting them bake out in the sun. And then when you fry it, it's like this crazy thing. I, I can't even describe it to you. And then that's what like all their food is like. They're taking these ingredients that no one had spent thousands of hours upon. How do I make this better, more delicious? So I think that vegan food and vegetarian food has so much going on right now. And you know, my buddy Brooks Heedley, have you been to Purity Burger in New York? Uh, no, I haven't. You got to check that out. Yeah. I think that is like the most rad, awesome thing. This is ever. the new vegetarian burger place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I hope is more. Not because like I think it's delicious, because it's just a delicious entity, food, yeah. food item. 
everything he makes is delicious. That's what's so cool to me. You got one of the world's great chefs, pastry chefs, opening up a vegan, no, mostly vegan now. And it's cool. And what's cool to me is not that it's vegan or vegetarian. That It's like, I'm going to do something that most people aren't doing right now. And I'm going to derive value from that and make it delicious. And and to me, that's what's cool. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, I think this is going to be the glory halcyon era for that, at least in America, because it's getting better because people are spending more time on it. And about 100 years will be halfway as good as the nuns in Korea. <laughs> but like, I think that's something that I encourage everyone to sort of try is something where it's like meatless. Most of Asia, they don't eat meat. Mm-hmm. I mean, growing up, they didn't. Yeah. But now that's another thing is you see kids now, they're so much taller yeah. because of the protein. That's why my mom, when she came to America, it was crazy. I'm huge because of my mom. It was nonstop beef and milk. <laughs> and, and for that purpose. Because they never had it. Yeah. Ever. It was about some fish and a lot of vegetables. Yeah. And rice. And um, I think that's changing. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But again, I don't know. But uh, I'm curious to see what the future has. How do you get the nuns who lay out the potato chips on the roof to give you lunch? Like, do you just walk in and you're like, hey, I'm here? No. Or was, is it something that like it was set a friend up. has to call the person who lives in the yurt? and they... It was – yeah, it was, uh, it was set up and you can do it. And of all of my travels the past sort of 15, 20 years, that was probably the highlight, getting to stay there for like three days and seeing the genuine happiness – of these nuns, I was like, oh, my God, I want what they are drinking or doing. <laughs> um, I just like I don't even know how you would start planning a trip like that. Uh, I, I think I could look through my emails and get it for you because when I go back, I, I want to go back. I want to spend like a week there. Their, their entire lives are developed around eating really well. It's like how firefighters have great food. But I was like, no, no, no. Like these guys, they only pray, gather their own food around the mountainside and then preserve it and then cook it. It was a sense of happiness, honestly, that I've never seen anywhere else. The thing that you see that these monasteries, Buddhist monasteries do, is that they're making all their own fermented products, kimchi, vegetarian kimchi. They're making their own soy sauce, their own miso called dengjang. And the reason why American miso and all that production sucks is because they had too much salt. Hmm. It's easier to produce on mass scale if you can control the microbial action with salt. But you get more flavor with less salt. And the stuff that these guys are making, I don't know if it could ever pass a health department inspection. <laughs> it's very clean, but yeah. like the flavors are just wild. There was this young woman that would follow me around everywhere. And she would literally just like put her hands together and go, bing. <laughs> and like so happy all the time. Oh, my God. What are three books that you would recommend people read? Oh, my God. I really like uh, – at work, I make everyone try to read The the Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. It's a great book. It's a great book. It's a great book, man. I love that guy. Yeah. I love everything he writes. The best part of that is when he's talking about Walmart and during Hurricane mm-hmm. Katrina because it's like – that book is really about hubris, yeah. I think. You think that you're good enough at something and the reality is like, you know, how do you empower people to like make decisions? Yeah. He's a terrifying guy, though. Is he? I mean, no, he's the nicest guy in the world, but just it's not reasonable to be good at that many things. <laughs> like, he makes me feel – you're talking to me like, oh, you're the best – I do a lot of writing on healthcare. It's like, oh, well, you're the best healthcare writer, like, in the country, but also you do 200 surgeries a year. And also you're doing a World Health Organization trial on how to save lives in the developing world. And it's like, 
I went home and played video games last night. <laughs> like, you make me feel like a bad person. That's that's a terrific book. I should reread that. Um, the one that I think I I think about more than I realize is that it's not really necessarily a book, but a small chapter in a massive book, the Bhagavad Gita. Mm-hmm. Which is a ridiculous thing to say, but I always turn to it because it's about decision making as well, and also about indecision, in the presence of the worst decision in the world, which is basically genocide, for Audrina at the time. And I think that um, I don't know how it comforts me, but I'm always thinking like when I have a tough decision, it's like what is the actual worst thing that could possibly happen in this decision, and it can't be as bad as I think it could be. So I like that one quite a bit. And uh, I read a bunch of weird stuff in college. That was one of them. I don't know. Another one that I recommend that has come more into my life recently is another something from college that was um, influenced the new neat restaurant quite a bit is Girl Escher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. Won a Pulitzer oh, in like yeah, 1982. Yeah. It's about um, a lot of logic and about a self-reference and um, patterns that you see in things. How did that influence the restaurant? I took an cl- advanced logic class in college by a professor that helped inspire, who wrote a book on logic that helped inspire the book, Gerda Lesher Box. We read a lot of it. Longer story, I just it stayed with me for a long time, and it's something that I've read over the years. And It was about, could I make food that looked Italian but not Italian at all? <laughs> and I think that there's, a, there's self-reference in the food that I'm trying to make in general, not just in Nishi, but... Uh, when you eat something so delicious, I feel like it transports you to another moment. And I always talk about that Ratatouille moment, the great Pixar movie. But at the end, the critic, he's not eating Ratatouille. He's eating Bialdi. That's Turkish. Hmm. It has nothing to do with Ratatouille at all. And I feel that human nature, we all can taste something delicious, and that is sort of a universal thing. And it's like, how do you make something so delicious that you know, there, there are things that you can... I give an example. We have a dish called... Uh, a Korean dish called sujebi, which is chicken soup with clumps of flour basically as a dumpling you have chicken and dumplings in the south the best versions of which are made with chicken bouillon and flour dumplings clumps of flour basically the korean version is in my opinion the best version is made with anchovy and seaweed and you have italian cuisine you have malfati and brodo which is a little bit fancier version but it's the same thing clumps of flour chicken soup dumped with parmesan on top. Mm. All three are the same dish. The only thing that really separates those three are the price point. But all three are chicken soup with MSG. So three culturally disparate food cultures that are making the same thing, yet very different. And I know it's delicious. So what if I take the best of all three and merge it into one? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that makes any sense, but to me, it's like, then what are you eating? Are you eating Italian food? Are you eating Korean food? You know, it's another thing is like when you eat kimchi, or you eat sauerkraut, like it's the same thing, but there's a completely different understanding of sauerkraut and kimchi, but it's a, absolutely the same thing. So if I'm making kimchi, I'm making sauerkraut, if I'm making sauerkraut, I'm making kimchi. So That's fascinating. I, I don't know if that makes any sense. Whenever I talk like this, it sounds insane. No, it does. It totally <laughs> makes sense. Like it, it's, a, it's like a fascinating question of just like cultural perception. Right, but... It's limited by culture, but we do need, I believe, some cultural understanding to make something more delicious. Mm -hmm. But there are sort of, I think, elements and food uh, combinations that you can do that are sort of universally accepted to be delicious. So the final question then, just because I I do view you and you are a great chef, 
What is one thing that most people don't know how to cook, but it would just be good for their lives if they did? Like, it's just like a good kind of staple thing that you can make, but that folks aren't generally familiar with. Oh, Lord. You know, I think a cool thing to do that at home people don't realize is how easy it is to cook rice. Hmm. Yeah. Or even grits or something like this. Like grain, people are going to eat so much more grains and going forward just because of the, 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 the supply and volume of it all. But cooking rice, you don't need a rice cooker. It's not that hard. It's really not that hard. It's <laughs> yeah. something that is always in your shelf. And whenever you make it, when you taste it and it's right, it's always like, oh, this is great. Just put a, you know, just a little salt on it and, you eat, and it's great. I don't know. Eggs too. People don't know how to cook eggs and it's so simple. What what is the thing that they that they don't know how to do with eggs? Anything and everything. I mean, eggs without a, without a doubt is like the desert island food because you can do so much with it. Mm-hmm. Ice cream is so easy to make. People don't make ice cream at home. You, I mean, you don't even need an ice cream machine, but you don't even need eggs to make ice cream for that matter. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, you can do so much with eggs, whether it's an omelet or just frying eggs. I don't know. I, whenever I go to anyone's house for vacation or wherever and they're like making eggs or something, I'm like, I'm like good God. <laughs> and not as like a chef. Yeah. I'm just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you hammering those eggs? <laughs> Everyone always overcooks their eggs. Uh-huh. Always. Even when it's a scramble. They always scramble their eggs. They cook it way too hard, overheat. Never do that. It's just, an, it's just impatience. You should just let it go slower. No, it's love. You just got to love it a little bit more. Yeah. And that's another thing I tell like, even my own cooks. It's like, it's amazing to me if you raise your own egg, I mean, your own chicken, and you pick your own eggs, you're going to cook it so much more better. You're just going to make it more delicious because you put effort into it. I, I don't know. I could talk about food forever, so I'll just <laughs> shut up. Well, David Chang, thank you so much. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Thank you to David Chang for spending that time with us. Again, I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever your fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. This has been The Ezra Klein Show, a production of Vox.com and the Panoply Network. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.